Thanks to Weebly for supporting The Productivity Show. Weebly is more than a beautiful website builder. It's an all-in-one platform for artists and entrepreneurs who want to sell their products, build their brand, and create successful online businesses. Go to weebly.com TPS to get 15% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Productivity Show, the Asian efficiency podcast dedicated to helping you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. Do you ever feel like things are harder than they should be? Then today's episode about cognitive productivity is for you. I'm joined by David Colby, CEO of Colby Corp, who has lived and breathed the Colby concept from its inception. David's work on Colby technology and intellectual properties began when he co-developed the original algorithm for computing Colby A index scores. His involvement in the design, development, and use of the Colby wisdom gives him great insight into all aspects of this valuable tool, including selection, organizational development, and team building. His current role includes management of operational, financial, technical, and legal efforts. In addition, he conducts seminars, research, and speaks to a broad spectrum of industries. David joined Colby Corp after working on Capitol Hill as legislative director for a Texas congressman and as an associate with the law firm of Gamage and Burnham. He earned his law degree from Arizona State University and Bachelor of Science in Economics from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. David and his wife Pam have four children and today he joins me to talk about how making small adjustments based on cognitive insights can improve your productivity in all areas of your life. We dive deep on the Colby A assessment, which we're big fans of here at Asian Efficiency, identify the cost that ignoring your cognitive MO has on your productivity. We show you how you can use your MO to achieve greater productivity in your team or organization, and even how cognitive knowledge can improve your relationships. You can find links to everything that we share in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 197. And now, on with the show. All right, David Colby, welcome to The Productivity Show. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I am super excited to record this with you uh, because we've been a big fan of the Colby A assessment here at Asian Efficiency for a long time. It was one of the first things that Tan had me do when I joined the team, and I'd never really experienced anything like that before. I thought it was kind of weird, but then <laughs> once, <laughs> once I got involved in the team, plugged into the culture and recognized some of the insights that you can get from that and how it can make uh, the work that you do with your team a lot easier, I, I was definitely hooked. So I'm really excited to uh, to have you on the show. And uh, for people who maybe aren't familiar with the, the Colby company or the Colby type A assessment specifically, uh, can you just real briefly explain what that is? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. And I'm really happy to hear that it's made a difference for you, you know, understanding your strengths. And that's kind of where I'd like to start is really Colby and the, the Colby index is all about understanding your strengths, but it's a very particular kind. It's this, this, it's called conative. It's this instinctive way that we all have of taking action. And what we figured out was there are distinct patterns that people have. They can be identified. And when you do identify them, you can understand the patterns of the way they'll take action, the way they'll problem solve. And when you know that, first of all, let's just start for ourselves. When you know that about yourself, it really helps you understand the right approach for you to take, you know, and 
sometimes when to not listen to well-meaning advice um, because it just doesn't necessarily fit for you. So that's a, at a very high level, I guess, let's just start there. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the conative uh, the conative aspect of this is is interesting, uh, especially for me because I have a background with uh, working with with soft skills development, and I guess kind of my interpretation of this, and you can correct this wherever this <laughs> this is incorrect, but uh, a lot of people recognize the cognitive assessments, and I would kind of view that as like the hard skills, the reading, writing, arithmetic, the the actual skills that you have for the tasks that you're doing. And then you've got a level up from that. You've got the affective skills, which is kind of the the soft skills, the the empathy, the the drive, the motivation, that sort of thing. And that's great. But the conative is like a level above that, in my opinion, where it's kind of how that stuff plays out, and it kind of directs everything else that that you do below that. Is that a fair description? Absolutely. I think that's the right framework. These three parts of the mind, cognitive, affective, and conative. The only thing we would approach differently, and maybe it's ironic that we would we would do this differently than you did. I wouldn't say that the conative is above because that implies more important, perhaps, or even later in a process. Um, I think those three parts of the mind are co-equal. I think that the, the way you've described them is kind of the easiest to understand maybe from, hey, that, you know, the cognitive stuff, you learn that when you're in school. It's, it's a combination of, you know, your native intelligence and then everything you learn along the way. So you talked about reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, you can be super smart, but if nobody teaches you algebra, you might just not understand some of the principles. So the, those cognitive skills, it's early in our, our development that we are taught those, that there's an understanding of them. And then you're right, that the affective stuff, the motivations, the preferences, we're taught those, I mean, actually also at an early age, depending on maybe who our parents are, but we certainly learn about them and we recognize them. That third part, the conative part, frankly, most people are never taught about it explicitly. A lot of people get it in little pieces because there's maybe an understanding, even though they don't have the language to go around it, but it's... It's not more important than those other two parts. It's just a different part of us. And really, you need to understand all three of those if you're going to be really efficient and productive. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you want productivity is, is all about identifying what's really going on and then tweaking the systems. And, and you know, my abbreviated, opinionated <laughs> definition, you know, understanding the, the way the systems are working and then tweaking them to get the results that you want. Uh, and so is there anything else specifically you want to speak to about the conative level and why specifically people should pay attention to it? Yeah, and I know we'll delve into more details about what we measure, but just another thing I'd like to say, what we've seen and what we measure is it doesn't change over time. So it's not something where when you learn your cold new results, it tells you, oh, here are the weaknesses that you have and the gaps that you need to fill in because you're not going to change who you are. So it's not a matter of fixing a weakness. It is a matter of understanding who you are and then how to apply that. Yes, there are situations where a particular job or a particular task isn't a great fit for your strengths, but rather than trying to be somebody who you aren't, it's kind of acknowledging that, recognizing it, having some techniques for getting through that. Because look, we live in the real world. We can't just always say, 
tax day was not too long ago. So you can't just say, you know, I'm not going to pay my taxes because that doesn't fit me. No, you have to pay your taxes. You have to pay them on time or you get in trouble. So if if following a process or gathering all that information is not normal for you, well, hey, maybe, you know, you hire an accountant to do that stuff. You have to pay some money. Maybe you just grit your teeth, you know, and you do it. But what we're talking about is all about your strengths. It's not going to change. So you, you figure all that out and, and figure out how to make it work for you. Yeah, I I love the the results that you get you get emailed after you take the, the type A assessment anyways, the first line is congratulations. You got a perfect score, <laughs> right. even though they're, they're all different because uh, recognizing your strengths is, is really important. That was one of the big takeaways that I got when I dove into the the book, uh, the cognitive connection by Kathy Colby that opened mm-hmm. up, all, uh, opened up my eyes to a lot of different things on what the Colby type A specifically was really speaking to. And like you just mentioned, one of the big takeaways I had was that, you're pre-wired to function well in certain areas, certain tasks. But I know that's one of the things that people push back on a little bit is sometimes you're not in a situation where you get to choose. Uh, I want to order my tasks according to my my cognitive strengths. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we get into that, though, maybe we should just talk about the the four different action modes that uh, are part of the, the Colby type A. Sure. So, as I said, the general framework is these three parts of the mind, and we're talking about the cognitive, the way you take action, the way you problem solve. And a little caveat there is that's when free to be yourself. We all find ourselves in situations where we are kind of forced to operate a particular way. That doesn't mean what we can shift and do things in different ways, but we're talking about when you have the freedom to be yourself. Um, How do you take action? So what we've identified are, as you mentioned, four different action modes that describe different ways we take action. They're all kind of of equal importance. They're all just different, but they don't compete with each other. And everybody has a result in all four of the action modes. It's not like, oh, you only are one or the other. Absolutely not. So the first one is what we call the fact finder action mode. It's all about the way we gather and share information. So on one end of the spectrum is somebody who really needs to to research, to get information, uh, to delve into the details. Uh, You see these people often becoming experts. When you ask them a question, if they don't already know the answer, they're going to figure it out, find it out, you know, look it up online. They're not typically going to just guess at it and give you a ballpark. Uh, They'd rather not say, oh, it's about X. You know, they'd rather say, oh, it's 92.2%. On the other end of the spectrum is somebody who simplifies, somebody who, hey, they can still, and keep in mind, this is totally different than how smart people are, so don't correlate the two, but somebody on the other end of the spectrum who simplifies, they get the overview. They look at the entire forest rather than cataloging each and every tree. So that person, if you ask them a question, they're way more likely to give an estimation. Um, You know, instead of 92.3%, they'd say, you know, it's over 90%. And that's that's close enough. Both of these are strengths. And by the way, then there most of the people fall in between those two extremes that I'm describing. So most people would be, you know, a little bit in between. They kind of edit. They don't need to push for more research and data. They don't just push for simplifying and streamlining. Um, they're in that, that mid-range. So that's fact finder. Uh, the next one that we describe is called follow-through. 
and it's how you organize. It's how you systematize. So I'll start at the end of the spectrum where uh, some people, what we would call preventive or counteracting follow-throughs, they really have a strength for being open-ended, adaptable, uh, very free-form. So this is the kind of person that looks for shortcuts. Then they really have a strength for operating in an environment without guidelines and processes in place. Uh, At the other end of the spectrum is somebody who really puts together, they initiate systems, they organize. Uh, If you walk into somebody like this, if you walk into their office, you'd see things being neat. Even if they have a lot of stuff, it's organized. If they don't have enough room for all the storage and it has to be out, it'll still be in a specific structure. Maybe things are color-coded. There's a process in place. They, when they begin a process, they typically go all the way through to the end. They need closure and completion. And then obviously, again, in the middle, you have most of the people who are a blend of those two ends of the spectrum. Uh, You know, people who follow a system that's in place, but don't necessarily create one. Uh, They aren't always looking for shortcuts, but hey, if things are becoming overly bureaucratic, they will look to eliminate a couple of extra steps that aren't needed. So that's follow through. The next one we call quick start, and it's how you deal with risk and uncertainty. So on one end of the spectrum are people who really drive uncertainty. They they experiment. uh, They do new things that they've not tried before. They really need to do that. It's part of who they are. The other end of the spectrum is somebody who stabilizes, somebody who prevents uh, this kind of chaos from experimenting and always doing different things, basically finds what works uh, and sticks with it. And then the the fourth one is what we call implementer. Um, And it's how we deal with space and tangibles. Mike, I wish I could go back in time and change the name for this because it sounds too much like how you implement as in carry things out. The, The name actually comes from the use of tools and implements Uh, That's why it's called Implementer, but it's all about this tangible three-dimensional world we live in. So initiating implementers uh, start the problem-solving process by physically touching, building, creating in a three-dimensional world. Um, The other end of the spectrum, uh, counteract implementers, imagine. Uh, They think about things in their mind or they design it maybe on a computer rather than physically putting it together. If you're seeing them do a presentation, the initiating implementer is likely to demonstrate things with models and props uh, rather than just words. So that's a quick overview of all four of those modes. Awesome. And yeah, an implementer was the one that the first time I took the assessment, I didn't really understand what it meant. Uh, Having read the the Cognitive Connection, it makes a lot more sense now. And uh, I think it's it's a really interesting scale. And I want to go back and uh, talk a little bit about you had mentioned there's like initiating and counteracting on either end of these these scales. Um, so let's maybe define those a little bit. And uh, I'll just add that when you take the assessment, you basically are ranked from one to ten in each of these different areas. And we'll go through maybe my results in a little bit here. I'll be the, the guinea pig to, and you can kind of uh, show people what kind of insights you can get from this. But uh, on the printoff, on the, on the printoff I have anyways, counteract, which is the low end. Uh, those are the people who are going to resist, you know, fact finding or quick start, whatever, uh, one to three. And then the middle section, which is where you mentioned a lot of people are going to land, 
that's four to six. And then if you're seven to 10, that's when that's kind of your, your MO, that's one of your strengths. Right. Yeah. And we call each of those zones. Sometimes we try to focus less on the, the exact numbers, although they are helpful. Uh, and we really emphasize the zones, those three areas that you just described. And the reason we call them initiate versus counteract is what we've seen is somebody who's got that score, as you said, in a seven, eight, nine, or 10 in any one of these four, uh, they really initiate action using that action mode. So you just mentioned fact finder. So, you know, in fact finder, if you initiate there and full disclosure, I do, um, I'm an eight in fact finder. What that means is when somebody gives me a task, my first instinct is to get information, uh, become an expert, research, find out what is what other people have said about this in the past. You know, when people tried this out, what were the results? Um, that's just who I am. And that's true at work. That's true at home. Um, my mom used to tease me because she'd just say when I was a kid, oh, how did you like the movie? And instead of just saying, oh, it was really good. I liked it. I would start giving her, you know, detailed description of the characters and the plot. And now that I have my own kids, they make fun of me a little bit because we're having some discussion and the details are really not necessary, but I can't help myself. That's just what I do. I'm a detailed kind of person. Now I can use the cognitive side of me to understand, Hey, who am I talking to? Who's my audience? I need to not overwhelm them or bore them with too much information and detail. But that's how I initiate things, particularly, as I mentioned, taking action, problem solving, that kind of stuff. So, And that's true across the board in all four of the action modes. I just used FactFinder as the example. Now, the other end of that is this counteract side. And we use that word because what we see is somebody who's there, and I'll use myself as an example again. So I have a, a strength in follow-through as a, a counteracting person. So what that means is, I don't initiate action with creating systems and structures. I also don't really initiate action even with my strength and follow through as somebody who kind of cuts through bureaucracy, but I counteract. Uh, I, I resist. I push back against overly bureaucratic systems perhaps, or really in-depth processes. I will find a way to cut through those. Um, when I organize my own, work life, I will push back against a routine that to me starts becoming stultifying. You know, it keeps me from being creative. That's just me. It's not that a process or a routine inherently prevents creativity. And frankly, that's a notion that I push back against a lot because you, I think we deal too often in stereotypes of, well, to be creative means that you have to be, you know, off the wall, unpredictable, no, absolutely not. Uh, I know lots yeah. of create lots of creative people have a process. Uh, I was actually watching a great documentary called Abstract on Netflix a couple of nights ago, uh, and there's an illustrator who's really creative. I mean, his work is just I, I it was awesome. He gets up, he goes to work every morning at nine. He has a very specific process of how he starts his day, goes through his goes through his day. Uh, he had a great phrase that resonated with me. And by the way, he's very different from my process, but I thought it was a great example of what we try to teach people here at Colby, that he understood his strengths and the way he needed to go about his business. 
and he was talking about how some people, you know, don't even try to be creative on a schedule or with a process. Uh, they think they need this, you know, again, stereotypical bolt of inspiration, that eureka moment. And, you know, some people think, well, you can't force it. And he said, you know, my saying is that inspiration is for amateurs. His point being that because he's a professional and literally professionally gets paid to do it, but also kind of the implication of he's really good at this stuff. He doesn't just wait to be inspired. He has a process to make creativity happen. You know what? His process wouldn't work for me, but it is great for him. And it shows how you don't have to be the stereotype crazy genius to be creative. So a little long-winded, but there's kind of a description of those two ends of this spectrum. Yeah, I want to go back and touch on a couple things that you said. First of all, the creative thing, uh, I, I know that I've kind of struggled with that being a high fact finder, a low quick start. I always excused my quote-unquote lack of creativity as I'm just not creative because I don't have a high quick start. But that's not really <laughs> that's not really the case at all. And what I've discovered over the years is that I can use my high fact finder to be more creative. And uh, the documentary that you mentioned, uh, I was I'm thinking of a, another author, and I forget who exactly said it, but they said it this way: I only write when inspiration hits. Fortunately, it hits every day at nine a.m. <laughs> they're probably a high fact finder as well. <laughs> well, and that actually might be. It's fine to use the language high and low, but I'm not going to use it because, again, of the implication that, you know, you describe yourself as a low quick start. And I think, you know, when we hear that, we think, oh, you know, Mike's not as good at quick start as somebody who has a higher number. Um, you're absolutely as good in quick start. You just have a different quick start strength than those people with a higher number. We've actually struggled with the right way to communicate the results. Uh, at times, we've stopped giving numbers. We have found, though, that people really push back because they want to see how they compare to other people in a more distinct way. <laughs> um, but you're right that what you're describing is we're all creative. So for you, you know, with your initiating talent in fact finding, your creativity is sparked when you do do the research and find out what other people have done. You are not a natural experimenter with your three and quick start that's what people see and talk about in terms of creativity. And I think that's unfortunate because I think that we, by not acknowledging the different ways people are creative, we tend to stifle some of that. And I think that, you know, with the, the broad topic of, of this podcast being efficiency, I think that there are a lot of people who are geniuses with efficiency who don't get the credit they deserve because the things, the, not just the things, the way they go about creating, because oftentimes what we see is people who are very efficient are more initiating and follow through the systems and structure. What they're creating, sometimes people don't see as being, again, it's not that off the wall, oh my gosh, nobody's ever thought of that. Uh, and yet it can be hugely important uh, for the, the success or failure of, of companies, of people, um, and it can create things that are beautiful. One, an example that I'll give, it's a small one, and I don't obviously don't have this person's results, but Henri Matisse, the artist, when you look at his work, there's almost always a pattern that he paints. So I don't know his process. I don't know what time he got up in the morning or if he had a routine that he followed. I maybe should do some research with my fact finder on that. But he almost always paints a pattern. 
into his paintings. And so it's often made me think, you know, maybe he was an initiating follow through and aesthetically that's what drove him to want to include that. So, you know, he was part of a movement that is seen as uh, groundbreaking and experimental at the time. Uh, and yet maybe for him, the system, the, the, that, the pattern, that repeating pattern was something that he was drawn towards. Yeah, and that's that's a good distinction. I'm I'm glad that you you clarified that. Um, forgive me if I continue to refer to it as high and low because it's been ingrained in me for so. Yeah, long. no, it's it's not a problem. But, uh, but yeah, I'm just looking at my results right now for the uh, the follow through section. Um, I have a big box that says it's how you follow through that matters, and this one in particular I like because you hear the term follow through, and if you just look at it at surface level, it can kind of uh, at least in my opinion, be projected as, well, a high follow-through is good, a low follow-through is bad. Because obviously you want to be able to follow yeah. through and do the things that you say you're going to do. But that's really not it at all. It's just figuring out the way that you implement, maybe I shouldn't use the word implement, but no, the way a, that follow-through manifests in your in your uh, your productive work. Uh, that is really important. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. And you know, But there are some realities. And most people have a harder time seeing the value in the react areas. And as I'll use the word in those low areas, so, you know, where you have a one, two or three. Uh, so following on the follow through discussion. So I, I'm a two and follow through. And, you know, I, when I was a kid, I really wasn't rewarded for my fantastic strength of not following a system. You know, you're usually punished for those things. That's usually in small ways, but you know, the, an example that I remember and that sticks with me is, you know, in grade school, when I had to turn in a paper on the, I was told, you know, each teacher would do it a little bit differently, but in the top right-hand corner, you're supposed to put the class you're in, the period you're in, and then, you know, your teacher's name and the date. And I had a teacher where if you turned your homework in without that, you got a zero. And, you know, I thought that was really stupid because I did all the work, uh, I forget one little thing and really who cares. And that was all about the teacher's convenience, by the way. That's so that the teacher can flip through and make sure that she's got all the papers from the right class together. I can think whatever I want to think as a fourth grader about whether that system makes sense or if the punishment is fair. But the reality is I had to live within it. So part of what we teach people, and frankly, we start with kids, uh, but we have to teach adults the same lesson we all you know, forget things that we learn in life and need to be reminded of them. It's fine to not like the system that you're in. And sure, there are times when it absolutely needs to be changed. You know, if something is truly unjust, great, fight it. But most of the time, it's not a matter of justice. It's just a matter of, again, like efficiency. My teacher had some reason to do it. I needed to learn to live within that. So we, we teach kids rather than fighting that, you know, oh, don't make me put my name and period and date at the top. Here are some ways that you can remember to do it. You know, you can, you find something that works for you. Getting back to the original point, that counteract strength is just not valued um, for the most part. And one of the really fun parts of my job is being able to give somebody like you your results and explain to you how that fantastic talent that you have in Quick Start, where you find what works you stick with it, you maximize the output, and you know, again, maybe in this context, the efficiency 
of not doing these needless experiments on things that are working really well, that's really important. Companies and systems that don't have people like you spin their wheels and waste lots of money. Uh, Now, you don't want everybody in the organization to look like you, just like you don't want everybody in the organization to be on the other side. So there's always this balance and this blend. And frankly, we need each other to have maximum results, you know, maximum output, uh, because we can be checks and balances. You know, one person, you know, so for instance, you might have this talent for uh, spotting the consistency that we need, especially with your, your accommodating follow through in addition to your quick start. And yeah, you need other people who are going to push those boundaries sometimes who are going to say, you know, Mike, I know this isn't naturally what you would do, but we're going to, we're going to try some new things out, but then figuring out how to include you in the process. So you're not just always, so for instance, in brainstorming, uh, if you're spending half your day brainstorming lots of new ideas, you're going to get really burnt out. And by the way, the people who are trying to come up with the new ideas are going to get really tired of you coming up with seven reasons why that's a stupid idea. <laughs> so that's you true. should, yeah, so we should put you in either for little chunks of time at the beginning or you don't even need to be there at the first part, but you absolutely need to be there before people start, start spending significant amounts of time and money chasing new things just for the sake of chasing new things. Thanks to Weebly for supporting the Productivity Show. With Weebly, you don't just get great-looking online store templates. You get all the tools you need to build your brand and promote your products, all in one package designed to turn your idea into a thriving online business. Plus, they've got an incredible customer success team. No scripts, no robots, just friendly experts whose only job is to help you do whatever needs doing. So whether it's lavender biscotti, or distressed denim sofas, Weebly helps you turn your idea into a powerful online store. Because success isn't just getting your products online, it's getting them in the hands of customers who will love them. As a fan of the productivity show, go to weebly.com slash TPS and you'll get 15% off your Weebly online store. That's weebly.com slash TPS. I want to get into like the, the cognitive stress or cognitive strain. Um, when you work with people who have different, different strengths or different, uh, you know, initiating actions versus uh, counter actions. And, uh, yeah. you mentioned like if you're an organization, you need all those different pieces. That's one of the things that we look for Asian efficiency team is we want people who have uh, different strengths that'll counterbalance what we tend to just, you know, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of people who have a, an initiating fact finder, for example, on the team. So we yep. know that we need that initiating quick start. <laughs> and so that's part of the you know the hiring process. We're looking for someone who has those strengths because we recognize that, that those are valuable. But I also want to go back to uh, you mentioned a couple different times. So you mentioned the, the school example where you had to write your name and grade and teacher date, whatever in a, a specific format. you didn't, you didn't think that was uh, that was very useful. And it just occurs to me that there's a lot of situations, not just in education, but for people who don't understand this conative realm, like you said, the default can be to approach this as, well, that's dumb. There's no reason that I should do that. And the person who is quote unquote high, they initiate in that particular area. They're like, no, this is really important. You have to do it this way. And just how 
if you recognize that there's not a right way to do this and we're going to approach this different ways and maybe both of them are valid, then uh, you end up at a, a lot better end result. And uh, I just think like you in another example, you mentioned, you know, your work, uh, your kids come back from seeing a movie. You want to know all the facts. They want to just say, oh, it, it was fine. You know, and I, I can think of so many situations with parents and teenagers where different mode or a different MO is going to create a whole bunch of stress. And the parents can say, oh, the kids disconnected. And really, it, it could just be that they're they're communicating differently. And so recognizing that can uh, make a lot of those relationships a lot less stressful. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll kind of start with that last point, um, even though it's a little bit different direction, but the the communication and the family stuff in particular. So you mentioned talking to kids. So I have four kids. My oldest is 19, freshman in college, and then I have twin 14-year-olds, and then uh, all of those are, are girls, and then I have a son who's 17 in, in between. People are different and each kid is different. And sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, teenagers or, oh, you know, girl teenagers. And we just think all girl teenagers are going to communicate in the same way. Absolutely not. So if you want to try to start a discussion with a preventive fact finder, but you and you think, well, I'm going to ask really detailed questions about that movie. So we start talking, you know, so tell me. You know, tell me about that character. Where you know what drives what? Where's that character from? Or you know, facts, figures, details, that kind of information. If your child is a, a counteracting fact finder and is a more big picture person, that's not likely to start a discussion. You know, there it would be more general thoughts and ideas. So rather than asking details, you know, it'd be you know more. Hey, you know what drives that character? So it's not. It's more thoughts, you know, general impressions rather than, you know, biographical highlights kind of thing. And it's also understanding the way people talk to us. Sometimes we're very, uh, and judgmental is maybe a little strong, but we, we certainly judge or have opinions about people's styles. And frankly, and I want to get back to the default position that you mentioned before in, in a work context, but I'll, we'll stay on the personal side here for a second. We tend to communicate the way, you know, through our strengths. And we tend, especially when you haven't heard about all this stuff we're talking about today, you tend to judge other people based on, well, do they communicate like I would communicate if I were them? And if they don't, well, they're not good communicators. Well, maybe in one sense that, yeah, if you are trying to talk to somebody else, you you need to understand what's going to, what the listener is going to, and you know, what's going to work for that listener. But so an example that uh, with a client of ours who uh, took his Colby index and, and he loved it and it explained so much to him. And one of the things that it explained, it's a very bittersweet story because it helped him understand something. Uh, but unfortunately, his father had passed away. So it didn't really change the relationship they had when he was alive. But he described that. So our client initiating fact finder person and fact finders tend to communicate in with written words. And he, when he went away to college, he would write his dad these long letters and, you know, telling him what's going on in his life and he'd send them off. And he would get virtually nothing back from his dad. You know, he didn't get these long letters. He would get a card, you know, happy birthday or thinking of you kind of thing, but he didn't get letters back. And it kind of, it, it bothered him. It's like, you know, he felt his dad didn't care that much, but when he learned about all this stuff, he looked back on, 
the relationship and the way his dad communicated. And what he realized was his dad was probably a preventive fact finder and an initiating implementer. His dad was the kind of guy who built stuff, who created stuff. And he said, you know, now I think of it, every time I would come home, you know, for Christmas break or in the summertime, uh, my dad would have made me something. He would have built me something that he gave to me. That was his long letter. You know, that was what I was looking for, but I was just, I didn't understand. It's not that he was dumb. He just didn't understand this part of his dad because nobody had, you know, explained what the cognitive part of the mind is. So he was really touched to learn kind of after the fact that, hey, my dad really was putting all of himself and communicating to me in this other way that was important to him. So, you know, part of my mission in life is helping people to understand that early so that these miscommunications don't happen and we can appreciate each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that story that you just told, it's it's clear to see the value in that particular situation because for somebody that you really care a lot for, you want to do something that's going to touch their heart. But if you understand their cognitive, uh, their cognitive preferences, it's a lot easier to do that. <laughs> you know, you can say in a maybe you know that that particular example, the the father is a initiating implementer, and if you never take the time to think about son's uh, son's preferences, then you can spend a lot of time, a lot of effort creating these things that you really want to just do to 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 bless your son and have it not really be received. And that really just boils down to communication in general. Like it's on the the sender of the message to make sure that, that it's received. So like, if you want, that's one of the things that I really like about this. And I know we'll talk about, you know, relationships a little bit deeper in a a second. I want to go back to the the, uh, work context for us in a moment, but uh, it just really hits me that like, if you want to communicate with someone uh, you don't say, well, you have to understand where I'm coming from. You take responsibility for the message being sent and received in a way that the person can receive it. And then uh, things get a lot better. And I think that a lot of people will approach it just as, uh, and I don't I don't want to use the term a selfish lens, but that's kind of what it is, is because you're looking at it through your preferences and not understanding the other person's preferences. And it just, hearing you tell that story, it occurs to me like, there are so many times when that happens and I can think of stories, you know, <laughs> with my parents too, where it's like, oh, I wish I would have understood this because then I would have recognized like really what my dad was doing in that instance. Cause my dad is uh, definitely initiating implementer as well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to use that example again, you know, maybe the father in that context, he's still not going to be the kind of person who's going to write the same kind of letters that his son writes, but maybe if he had written a letter back that just said, wow, you know, I really appreciate the thought that you put into your letters and you know, I'm a man of few words, but I want you to know that when I get those, they touch me. Yeah, exactly. And look, if he's not emotional, it doesn't have to use, I mean, that would be more my language, but it could just, you know, it could be as simple as, Hey, I really appreciate all the time and thought you put into your letters. You know, they're awesome. Um, Hope you appreciate the gifts that I give you, you know, that I make you when you come home. Uh, But again, if you don't know that, if you don't understand the whole context, uh, you wouldn't think to write that letter. So, you know, again, that's what we try to try to help with. But you you had asked and I kind of didn't answer the first half of your question about the the stress, you know, the strain and the tension that that can happen. 
And another big point that I want to hit that was kind of embedded in that earlier question example that you used is, yes, we focus on being able for yourself to, to work in a context that allows you to use your strengths. We focus on helping leaders build an organization where that's generally true. But I, and, and that will generally reduce the stress. When, you, when your job fits your, your Colby results, uh, that will reduce the, the stress that arises because, you know, when you, you know, for me, hey, if my job is all about systems and structure and creating them and living within them, that's going to be a, a stressful for me because it's not natural. But I, I also want to add in there that it's also recognizing that there are jobs that are not particularly flexible. So we've worked with a bunch of airlines uh, and we've worked with uh the military and some of their pilots and and on the military side it's very much the you know, more peacetime or non-combat functions so it's more things that are maybe more routine the clear pattern and let's just focus really on commercial airline pilots you need to be an initiating or at least you know pretty highly accommodating like a six or higher in follow-through to be successful. So we've, we've had them give us metrics of who's a successful pilot versus not so successful, and, and then correlated that to Colby results. That job's not all that flexible. You know, they can't just say, hey, let's redesign this job to fit this good pilot that we want to hire. It's really the other way around. It's this job is all about following procedure. You know, a successful commercial airline pilot takes off when you're supposed to take off lands when they're supposed to land, follows the procedures, uh, is really diligent with the systems and the structure. So I wouldn't say, you know, the goal there is for the leader to design that job that's going to fit the employee because, you know, it's a routine job in the sense that they've got thousands of them. It's structured very distinctly. You know, so there are roles like that. So there it's a matter of, well, how can we find the right people so that they don't burn out, so that we don't have you know, unwanted mistakes, uh, you know, so I am not the prototypical commercial airline pilot because with my two and follow through, uh, even though I'm a smart guy and I know I'm supposed to follow all the systems and the checklists, that's not normal for me. And that will be stressful. And if I want to be a pilot, you know, maybe I should try to be some other kind of pilot. Um, hopefully I would have a co-pilot that would be doing all of those things and following the checklist to avoid accidents and stuff. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I I like that uh, the description. And there's not every job is gonna, I think, be perfectly suited to a certain cognitive profile. There's gonna be some jobs that there's there's a lot of flexibility here. And I think there's also traditionally speaking, a lot of jobs where they don't even take this into consideration. So maybe you're making the decision whether to be an airline pilot based on test scores or cognitive abilities. And then you get there and you realize that I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you go look for something else, which is really a shame. Um, but I want to uh, back up a little bit here and talk about this in the context of, let's say you're, you're working with a team, an organization right now, because this can apply to everybody, recognizing that you're going to have people who have different profiles, different MOs, and there is going to be a cost to this cognitive stress. And if you don't recognize it, it's really robbing your productivity. I think in the yeah. uh, the cognitive connection, the stat was given, like if you're a $40,000 a year employee and you have 25% cognitive stress, you're losing $10,000 in productivity. And I know that there's uh, a lot of people in a lot of situations where they never recognize the cognitive differences and they just butt heads with the people that they work with. And it's probably more than 
percent. So yeah. can you kind of explain uh, the different types of cognitive stress here and then also maybe some tips for overcoming it? Sure. Yeah, they're basically, I would boil it down to two different kinds of cognitive stress. One is the stress that you have where your strengths don't match the job that you're in. And that's what I used as an example before, you know, so let's say the pilot, you know, if I'm in a, a pilot role and I've got to be this system following, you know, procedure oriented person. So I can do that. I'm smart enough. I can force myself, but it's going to be stressful. I am going to use more energy to do it. And by the way, we've done some research looking at electrical patterns in the brain. So using QEEG analysis, and we've actually seen that somebody who's in that situation that I just described, so working against their grain, in that case, not flying airplanes, but doing very simple tasks that you can uh, be measured with QEEG while you're doing them, they actually use more energy. There is more electrical stuff going on in your brain than somebody who's doing the same task, but it's a task that is better suited for them. It, it basically fits their Colby results. Um, by the way, they don't get better results, that person using more energy. So, And that's kind of a, a measure of productivity or efficiency is, okay, same result, but use 25% more energy. That's not very efficient. And with brain science, you know, sometimes we think of this mental energy just as a metaphor, but it's actually a literal thing. Your brain is one of the biggest consumers of energy in your body. If you are working your brain very hard over the course of a day, it actually drains you, not just, to, again, in a metaphorical way, but it uses calories, it burns energy, and you are then less ready to perform at high levels if you're depleted. So, Part of being really mentally efficient is applying your strengths so that you, you know, instead of working harder to achieve the same result, you're working on tasks that are better suited for who you are. And we see results of that, not just in a QEEG study of mental, you know, of electrical patterns in your brain, but then a lot more uh, prosaic results that we see in the workplace, like burnout, you know, like absenteeism. Uh, we've done studies with our clients showing that, look, those people who aren't as well suited to their job, guess what? They miss more days over the course of the year. Guess what? They leave their job sometimes because they're fired sometimes. And frankly, in this environment right now where the labor market's pretty tight, good people quit their jobs, look for something else because they're too good. They can find something else that doesn't drive them crazy, stress them out every day, you know, come home and just want to scream. So they're going to do that because they can find that other job. So if you think about it from the employer's standpoint, you're being pretty short-sighted if you just grind and grind and grind on people and make them work. And, you know, I don't care if this fits you well, you're just going to produce. They're going to leave. Uh, and oftentimes it's your best people who are going to leave because they know they're really valuable uh, and they, they value their own talents and they're going to take them somewhere else. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And then, so that's that's the one kind where a person doesn't fit the job well. The second kind of, of stress that you see from a cognitive perspective is people working together. So the easiest way to look at that is just a one-to-one situation. You have two different people, and they're very different, and they can that that can be a source of stress for those two people. That's actually almost an easier one to get past in some respects because just understanding the difference. And acknowledging the difference helps those two people to, to figure out, 
wow, it's not that the other person is doing this to me. You know, they're not making my life difficult because they don't like me or, you know, whatever. We just have different approaches. And then the, the second part of that is where possible. And really let's focus on the leader here because usually, well, or if they're peers, um, but it's just easier when it's kind of a leader and subordinate dynamic. If the leader understands, I want to focus on results, on outcome, and less on forcing a particular process or methodology for that person, if that person's different, uh, but I tell them to do it in a way that fits just for me, that's going to stress them out. It's, you know, it's going to cause friction between the two of us. If I focus on the results and don't worry so much about, do we do it the same way? It's just, by the way, it's keeping people accountable for those results. They don't get to just say, oh, I'm going to do it a different way and then not produce. Um, so really, being an enlightened leader is spotting those differences. Uh, when can I allow for flexibility from that other person? Just focus on results and not on the process. But also understanding there are times where that process is what drives the results. It's what drives the efficiency and productivity. And no, we can't just change all that stuff. But there's also this frustrating irony that we see, which is typically when you have two very different people, you actually get better results with those people working together. Or let me put it a different way. You can often get more output from those people working together than those two people just working independently. But the, the trade-off here is, or the, maybe the threat is, they have to work, figure out how to work out those differences. If it's just butting heads and battling over process and methodology, you're going to get less than if you just put them on opposite sides of the room and had them work independently. So that collaboration can lead to extra efficiency and productivity and outcome, or it can go the other direction. You really just have to work through that process. I like that. I like that a lot. The power of alignment uh, and there's a, a section in the uh, the cognitive connection where it talks about targeting another person's efforts. So this is a little bit out of order in our our outline here, but I think it's relevant to what you were just talking about. Uh, if you want to make sure that your cognitive preferences and your differences are contributing to increased productivity rather than just increased cognitive strain, uh, is there certain things that you would recommend? Like if I know that I am a high fact finder and you are a high quick start, does that change how I would talk to you when working on, on tasks? Um, yes and no. We talked about the communication part, and I totally, it sounds like you and I are aligned. If you want to be a really effective communicator, you need to understand the listener and how the listener is going to be willing to receive and best respond to that communication. So yeah, that's part of it is, hey, you know, with that quick start, if I want to uh, get them bought into something, maybe I should describe the, um, the new opportunities, the challenge, the risk that's involved, the, hey, you know, nobody's tried this. Let's see if we can do it. And that's great. Um, somebody else won't necessarily respond in the same way. So, so that's part of it. And then you know, I think there, there are all kinds of issues around how to manage uh, the different tasks and how you split them up between the two of you and uh, identifying, you know, maybe parts of a process for when should this person be involved and when should it be the other person to take the lead? I, I'm not sure if that answers the whole question. 
Yeah. So in the uh, in the book specifically, one of the things that I had written down was some of the phrases that you could use. You basically spoke to it, but like for a quick start, for example, you challenge them by saying it might be impossible. <laughs> like if someone yeah. told me this might be impossible, go work on it. I'm terrified. I'm <laughs> not touching it with yeah. a 10 foot pole. But uh, for somebody like you, who is a high quick start, for example, maybe that energizes you and you're like, oh, I'm going to figure out how to do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, one one of the things we've seen working with our clients is Somebody at the top. So we're, let's stick with this this quick start side. Just what you're describing. Uh, there will be people who will think, oh, you know, let's tell everybody about this great opportunity we have where we can totally rewrite the direction of the company. We're going to take these bold moves. And yet there are a lot of people in the organization for whom that's really demotivating. Uh, and you might be one of them. It's not that, you know, it's not that you're some fragile person. It's not that at all. It's you know, what you're hearing is this is, wow, maybe we're in trouble because why Why on earth would we abandon all of the things that we're already doing well? So sometimes what we see is the leaders really don't have an understanding of the predominant culture in their organization, or maybe it's the, the specific team that they're talking to. So let me overgeneralize a little bit, but this is, you know, I've worked with enough clients to, you know, this is an actual pattern. So Accounting departments tend to have people who are more preventive and quick start. And so, you know, they stabilize, they stick with what works and they in follow through, they're more driven by processes and structures, and, you know, which makes sense given what they're doing most of the time. So if you get a leader coming in and talking to that department about how exciting it is that we're going to take on these new initiatives and you know, we're going to change the future of the company that might sound totally nonsense to those people. So you can tell them about the same thing, but if you put it in a different context, if you you know give those initiating follow-throughs a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know. So instead of describing it as something that's totally new, and you know we're going to embark on these you know, new endeavors and change the face of the company, if instead you say to those people, "We are going to build on the success that we've had over the last forty years," and we're going to tap into the amazing strengths that we have in this room and across the company and all of the, you know, the cognitive skills that we built, you know, we're the smartest in this and that and the other thing. And we're going to use those strengths to, you know, beat the competition in these areas that we've already started working in, but we are going to be the leaders, same initiative, but a totally different message that for those people is going to make a lot more sense. They're going to hear that and think, yeah, that, oh, I get it now. So we came from here, you know, here's where we are now. And then here's the next chapter in that story. But if you don't understand that you're talking to a room full of people who need to hear the message that way, you're going to not even know how to change your, your message. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, it, my experience, which again is limited, but communicating that way doesn't have to be stressful for you either. It can, in some cases be energizing because you know that this isn't going to fit your MO and these people, it fits their MO. So they're going to eat this up. They're going to love this thing. Whereas I would procrastinate on it and not want to do it. So (laughs) just by taking a little bit of extra effort to describe it in the correct way, they can now run with the vision and that little bit of effort is going to translate into a whole lot of results. Yep. Absolutely. So obviously there's this uh, give and take when it comes to working with different cognitive preferences in the workplace. And another place that this 
plays out a lot <laughs> is in relationships. So mm-hmm. there's a saying, opposites attract. I'm wondering if you find that true with cognitive preferences. <laughs> you know, we have not done the research. Anecdotally, what I'll tell you is I, th- I think that tends to be more true of looking at married couples. Couples who met and got married younger, I think that tends to be more true. Couples who met or got married later in their lives, I think it they seem to be a little more similar than the opposites attract thing. But again, I... We haven't done research on it. So my eight and fact finder is going to put a big asterisk next to that. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, my wife and I definitely fit that description. We're high school sweethearts and uh, we have very different cognitive preferences. So uh, mine, I'm a seven fact finder, six follow through, three quick start, three implementer. She's a four fact finder, six follow through, seven quick start, three implementer. Now, before we started recording today, uh, Emery had sent over a link to a product that it looks like you've just launched, which helps yeah. people reconcile these differences. And I thought this was awesome. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? And then maybe if, if you want to use us as examples, you know, give people some analysis so they can see like what kind of insights you can get from this, uh, feel free. Sure. So, yeah, I, I talked about how you know we're really a mission-driven company and, and our mission is to help people understand cognitive strengths and then apply their strengths to the things they care about. And it was really interesting to us. I mean, I've, I've noticed this a lot of times, but uh, we had a board meeting and so we asked all the board members at uh, this one board meeting to just kind of quickly describe how using Colby and understanding their, their Colby results has made a difference in their lives. And every single person, even though all of them really had business relationships with us and were business clients in many cases, all their examples were personal examples. And so mostly it was around either their spouse or their child. So, yeah, we've launched a new website called Takes2.com, and it looks at romantic relationships, so typically spouses or you know committed relationships. It's not a dating site. It's not there to find somebody. But it takes people like you and your wife and says, okay, well, if you know your Colby A results, what does this tell you about the way you guys work together? So, and I know you've, you've looked at your results. I don't know how much, but the biggest difference between the two of you is in quick start. So she's much more of this risk-taking, experimenting, uh, you know, try it out kind of person. And you're more of the stabilizing, hey, let's find out what works. Let's stick with and improve on that. So I would imagine that when you didn't know that, uh, that can be stressful. I mean, my wife and I have a huge difference in follow through. And I was asking her one time, well, you know, how do you think understanding our cognitive differences has changed things? And she thought about it for a second. She said, well, I don't want to kill you, Uh, which (laughs) I'm really happy she doesn't want to kill me. But really what she was talking about when I asked her to explain a little more, she said, by understanding these differences, she understands that I don't do things the way I do them to annoy her. I don't do them because I don't care about or love her. I do them because that's who I am. So with you and your wife, you know, you don't push back against her need for trying out new things and experimenting because you don't love or appreciate her. You do that because that's who you are. And she's not pushing to do all those different new things because she doesn't care about you or isn't aware of, you know, what, what your needs are. That's just who she is. That's the way she takes action. So 
at just the most basic level, what we really hope is takes two uh, will point out to people what these differences are, how they're likely to play out, and the, the takes two results that people get when they go there describes four different kind of typical things that couples have to deal with. So it's finances, vacations, household chores, and communication. And just describes to people, all right, look, for, for starters, let's describe how each of you are likely to tackle these things just so you understand this is who your partner is. Uh, and then number two, look, if you're very similar, by the way, that can lead to stresses too. You can compete. Um, you know, if you're both initiating quick starts, it's, well, you know, whose new idea are we going to try out today? If you're very different, that leads to a different set of potential problems. So we acknowledge those things and then just discuss, okay, how do you deal with it? I'm excited about it because, we, again, as I mentioned, we see people over and over again tell us, it makes such a difference in their lives with those important relationships that we help make them better in a non-judgmental, you know, it's not that I learned this and I have to change myself. Uh, you don't do it because you have problems. You do it because you have hopefully a great relationship that can be even better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just to give people an example of the report that was sent to me, and I've gone through and read the the whole thing, and I, I love this, especially the communication part. <laughs> so there's a, a profile for Rachel, there's a profile for me, and uh, it's got a little blurb underneath it, and then it gets into the specifics, but just reading mine, it says, Mike, you naturally do things strategically and systematically at the same time. You're at your best when you can write things down and include some graphic elements to punctuate what you are communicating. Sometimes you may go on too long. So don't be offended if Rachel's eyes start to glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's an example. It's the don't be offended if, because, you know, she doesn't need all those things. You need to say them, but it's not her fault if it's too much for her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I can't find it now, but I know there was a section in here at some point where basically it was telling Rachel, don't be offended if Mike immediately shoots down, you know, <laughs> your ideas. And yeah. I laugh because I'm like, yeah, that happens all the time. She'll, she'll blurt something out because she's thinking about it. And the counteracting quick start in me is like, no, no, we have to avoid that. So <laughs> I naturally right. just no. these are the reasons why that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if that is really frustrating as just one thing for you guys, there are lots of different ways that you guys could come up with to lessen that frustration between the two of you. So, uh, you know, I've tried and we've worked with clients who you know, will say, like for you, hey, we'll give you like one no per day or something. So you can't just continually say no to new stuff. You've got to you've got to ration them. Or maybe, you know, the flip side of it would be, you know, hey, Rachel, you can only propose, you know, one totally new outside the box idea on us a day <laughs> so that you're not always in the position. And she may have maybe has to edit some of that before she brings it to you. Or who are other people you can bounce it off of? So, you know, I, I know you've got five kids. If, if one of them is old enough, well, how about she can talk to the kid first and then come back to you later? So just different ideas. Yeah, that's a, a great example. And uh, it kind of gets into the the next point on the outline, which we talked a little bit already, but the whole idea of the, the conative families. Uh, from the conative connection, there was a phrase on page 171 that really stood out to me. It says, a healthy family is one in which the members know each other, care about each other, and act accordingly. 
And mm-hmm. I just thought that was great. And obviously you can see how that plays out when you understand cognitive preferences of everybody, but how, if you don't understand those cognitive preferences, that you can act in a way that seems to be very counterintuitive to that. And especially in the family dynamic that can come across as, oh, so-and-so doesn't care. Right. Yeah. And I would actually, so again, on the language, I understand what you're saying with preferences, but what we see is, you know, your Colby A result, it's not just your preference. It's really who you are. It's just this inborn part of you. And that drives part of the issue here, which is if you don't understand and recognize that in your, your, whether it's your partner or your kids, you're going to misinterpret some of their behavior and you might be offended or hurt. You know, if Rachel wants to choose to be upset at your initiate or your your counteract quick start strength, I'm sure she can choose to be offended. And I'm going to use two different words. Frustrated is one thing. Look, you guys are different. So, yes, sometimes it'll be frustrating for her that you don't operate the same way she does. That's a very different reaction than being offended by it or hurt by it. Um, and what I would say to her is, you know, you need to get past that, frankly. And I'm not saying she does, but so maybe I shouldn't use you guys as the example here. But <laughs> I, I would say to a person in that dynamic, you've got to get past being hurt and offended by all those things because he's not doing it to you. He's doing it because that's who he is. And then when you understand that part of the dynamic, um, the frustration can still be there. And this is, again, I'm not naive about this stuff. It could still be an issue between the two of you that you haven't figured out. Um, But now you understand how to work it out. Let me give a great example from a a client who came up to me after a speech that I gave. It was actually two clients. It was a husband and wife. The husband initiating quick start. So very, you know, risk-taking kind of person, you know, trying new stuff out. Uh, Prevented follow-through. The wife initiating follow through. I don't remember the rest of her result. But when it came to vacations, she's the planner in the family with her follow through. So she naturally planned all the vacations and they were, I was very, she was thorough about it, you know, and she would have the itinerary and every day they knew what they were doing and by you know, time of day and yada, yada, everything filled in. Well, he was having his 40th birthday and she said, honey, so want to, you know, do something nice. Uh, let's go on a trip without the kids and you know, I want to do that for you. And he said, you know, that sounds great. She said, well, tell me what kind of vacation. And he said, you know, honey, I, I know you're, you're so great at planning all the family stuff and I really appreciate it, but I would really love to just look, we love Italy. I just want to go there and I just want to do whatever we feel like doing. I don't want to have a trip with the itinerary planned out by the minute, like usual. And that's what I would really love. So she said, great. Okay. That's what you want. That's what we'll do. So she made the flight reservations, you know, to and from. And uh, the only other plan that they made was they were going to be in Florence on his birthday. So she had a hotel room that night. The rest of the time, they just had a car. They could go wherever they wanted to go, live this lovely life for a a week or whatever. So they go to Florence on on his birthday. They do their stuff. Uh, At some point during the day, it's like, yeah, you know, hey, where do you want to go eat tonight? Uh, they both loved food, so they started looking in the guidebooks and figuring out, and you know, he picked the restaurant he wanted to go to. They go to the restaurant. You know, they say, you know, hey, two people for dinner. Well, do you have reservations? Oh, no, we don't have reservations. Oh, no, so sorry, but we have absolutely no reservations tonight. We're booked for the rest of the week. 
so the husband turns around to leave. He's kind of disappointed. And the wife says, um, two for Jones at whatever time. And I'm like, oh, yes, great. You know, let's take you to your table. And the husband's like, what? What, what, what are you talking about? She said, well, you know, it's your birthday. And I, you know, I know how much you love good restaurants. And I knew they might be booked. So I picked three and made reservations for us. And sure enough, one of the places that she picked ahead of time was the place he ended up picking. But what I love about that story is she never told him about it. She didn't say, well, this is the vacation you want, but I don't trust that it's going to work out well. So I'm going to do this. And if he had picked something else, some other restaurant, and that's where he wanted to go and they could get in. Okay, great. But so they both used their talents. Um, She didn't impose hers on him. But when it came to the point where that's what he really wanted to do, her strength made it happen. But they had worked that out. And even at the beginning of the story, the fact that he understood, I want a trip that's different from the ones she usually plans. And she understood why that would be important for him for his birthday trip. It's just a great story of two people who figured it out. (laughs) Wow. I love that story. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's, that's really cool. And uh, I, I love even how it, it started the the conversation where you emphasize the other person's strength and then express your opinion. Like I know honey that you're great at doing this and I appreciate all the times that you've done it that way, but this time I'd love to do it this way. That's a totally different conversation rather than just be like, Oh, I just want to do this. (laughs) Yeah. If he had gone to her first and really kind of aggressively said, honey, you know what? It's my birthday coming up and we're not going to do the vacation the way we, you know, you make us do it. Wow. You know, what a negative start to what should be a very positive thing. Even if he's initiating it, he can still start the same way and go to her and say, honey, I love the vacations that you plan. You know, I was really thinking that for this, maybe we could do something differently. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I want to end on uh, something uh, actionable that I think everybody can apply. You know, we've been talking a lot about working with teams and relationships and things like that. Um, But one of the things that I really liked about the results that get emailed to you after you take the the Colby type A is the, uh, and you had mentioned this briefly, the, the ergs of energy, and it's got like the pyramid of basically how you should spend your, your time. Uh, Can you just real briefly explain how to do that, not just uh, in terms of aligning your work with your conation, but um, like one of the things that I, I got when I read the the Conan of Connection was you've got these these different ergs of energy. So mine, for example, it's uh, strategize 37%, maintain 32%, stabilize 16%, envision 15%. So those those last two, quick start and implementer, those are the, the modes that I'm uh, counteracting in. But uh, when it comes to your work and paying for your shoes, you know, you want to be in your strengths because that's where you're, you're really able to be more efficient, like you said. Um, but you still, according to this pyramid, like you have these different ergs of energy for these other modes. Uh, and one of the tips, which I loved in the book, was use these on maybe your hobbies. So while I may not be initiating implementer at my job, maybe I have a hobby that scratches that, that itch for me. Yeah. And we see that a lot where uh, people use their time off 
And they, they kind of want to turn their brain off and do something that re-energizes them. So one way to re-energize, again, it is that turning off, that downtime of doing something that's different. The only advice there I give is don't try to strive. Don't try to do a great, you know, so I, I just went on a fishing trip. So, you know, for me with my fact finder, yeah, I, I do research and I get information in detail and actually, that's natural for me. It's, it doesn't take energy. So when I do something like that, I'm going to, you know, I'll ask the people I'm fishing with or, you know, I, I like to fly fish. So I'll pay attention to what kinds of flies are getting hatched right now that the fish are going to want to eat. And can I match my pattern that I'm using the, the, you know, on my flies to what's out there in the environment? That's a very detail-oriented fact finder kind of way. On the flip side... So I'm like you, a uh, counteract implementer, but I like to work out in my yard doing physical hands-on stuff. But for me, it's not something that I strive to do really well. I'm you know, not, it doesn't need to be perfect. You know, I'm not working toward an outcome. I'm not striving. So uh, for me, it's downtime of I put my headphones on. I do stuff in the backyard, you know, whether it's gardening or you know, trimming trees or planting stuff. And it's, it's relaxing because I'm not trying to produce something. I was talking with an estate planning lawyer who is the opposite, in fact, or an implementer of the two of us. So, you know, he's somebody with his, he, had, he was an initiating implementer, which, which typically means, you know, building, constructing, creating physical things. Well, you know, estate planning attorneys don't get to do that much. And he was a very successful estate planning attorney. So I asked him, you know, what's your what's your secret? How do you make this work? Because it would seem like your job would totally stress you out in that respect. And he said, well, you know, my job does kind of stress me out in that respect. But the thing that I really love, it just doesn't pay the bills, but I love building furniture. So he had, he, he'd made enough money in the job that, that paid the bills that he spent as much time as he could building furniture in this little studio that he'd built in his garage for, for furniture making. Totally different. For me, it's kind of downtime when I do physical stuff. For him, it was a passion. It was an avocation, not just some kind of hobby. It didn't, you know, it wasn't where he spent most of his time, but it helped him reduce the stress of a job that wasn't a great fit. It was okay, but it wasn't a great fit with this other thing he got to do to use that energy. <laughs> That's really cool. One example I can think of my my own life, uh, and this I guess kind of ties back to the relationships and families uh, aspect of this too, is uh, not being an initiating implementer. I don't like to build things, uh, especially with mm-hmm. with physical physical pieces. But my kids all love Lego. <laughs> and so yeah. one of the things I've been trying to make a shift intentionally about, cause I, I try to spend time with each of them. Uh, we've got five of them. I, I have a separate one-on-one scheduled every week with one of them. So it rotates every week. And, uh, I've made the, the, the last, last couple of weeks made the shift and recognized that like my, my eight-year-old in particular, loves to build Lego. He doesn't want to go to a coffee shop and, and talk, but he loves the fact that I'll sit down and play Lego with him, even though I noticed the first time I did it, it was really hard to get started because I want to know all the facts. I want to have the instructions. I want to know how the thing goes together. He just wants to dump out the bin and build something. <laughs> right. 
But it's cool that I recognize that and I'm able to spend quality time with him in a way that means something to him, which kind of goes back to the corner of families from the corner of connection talks about not forcing your conation on your kids, like letting them be themselves. Right. Yeah. And in that example, I would say, don't make him like if you get out, you know, hey, I bought this Star Wars Lego set. Let's open it up and let's start by reading the instructions. If you try to force your way on him, then he all of a sudden is like, oh, geez, I don't want to do Lego time with dad because you're ruining his fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know what? And this is something that I, I think a lot about my role as a dad. And so our natural inclination is to do things the way we do them and to, and to teach our kids to do them the way we do them. So, you know, I'd really encourage, sounds like you've already spotted this, I'd encourage everybody, you know, especially in their role as a parent, I think the best way to operate in that role is to help your kid get the most out of who they are. Where, what you, where the way you do things is a great example for a kid who's aligned with you in terms of the way you do things, then great, you can show them that way. And then the other parts of the mind, so we, you know, maybe getting back to the beginning of the discussion, there are other things that you want to teach them that aren't specific to the kid. So again, values driven things, you know, if you want to show and teach your kid how important it is to be honest and trustworthy, uh, that has nothing to do with their cognitive strengths. Um, you know, that's universal, but there are, even with that, there are different ways to show them. So with that Lego example of your kid, don't give your kid that Lego set and say, this is the way we have to do it. But if it's about working with your kid Find out, you know, observe the way your kid naturally does things and then help your kid find the joy and accomplishment of doing it their way. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the light bulb moment for me was looking at this and thinking about, okay, so I should find some sort of hobby where I can scratch my implementer itch, even though I'm naturally counter reacting. I've got so many implementer ergs of energy to spend in a given day and aligning these things and recognizing that, well, yeah, I want to spend more time with my kids. Yes. I want to speak into their life. I want to have a platform when they get to become teenagers that they feel like they can come talk to me about stuff that's going on. Uh, and how do I, how do I do that with the the limited time that I have? And it just, it, I mean, I, I don't want to boil it down to just efficiency because it makes it sound cold and callous, but recognizing that this meets the you know, implementer hobby itch for me. And it speaks directly to the way that my kids are wired. It's just like a perfect alignment of all the things. And those opportunities are there, whether you recognize yeah. them or not. So that's where, you know, this knowledge really comes in, in handy, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Uh, David, is there anything else you want to add uh, before we wrap things up? Uh, really just thank you. I, I love what I do. And I'm Glad that you're helping me reach a new audience and so that they can understand their strengths. Excellent. So if people want to know more about Colby, they can go to Colby.com. Is there anywhere else that you would want to send people? You know, Colby.com and that's K-O-L-B-E is definitely the best place. We mentioned takes two for the relationship side of things. Um, you could also check out Kathy Colby, who's the founder of the company. Uh, she's very active on Twitter. Uh, so it's just at Kathy Colby. Um, so she, she tends to tweet a bunch of stuff out and Colby Corp uh, at Colby Corp also has a pretty active uh, Twitter and Facebook page. So you can go to those places. 
Awesome. And there will be links to all of that in the show notes. So thanks so much for being on the show today, David. Great. Appreciate your time, Mike. Have a great one. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Colby and learned as much as I did. Cognitive knowledge has a big impact on your productivity, so it's important to understand how you're wired in order to take advantage of it. This is an area that is fascinating to me, and I even did a Colby training for the Asian Efficiency team a few weeks ago after reading The Cognitive Connection and studying it for myself. It's also a big topic in the dojo, our online productivity community, where you can surround yourself with other super smart, like-minded achievers who can help you overcome productivity obstacles and take action on your goals. Come join the Colby conversation in the Dojo forums and see how others are implementing the Colby Type A assessment tools in their own lives for increased productivity and efficiency. Now, here's the best part. You can get access to everything the Dojo has to offer for only $1 for your first month. But this offer is just for podcast listeners, so if you want to take advantage of this special offer, you have to go to theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. You'll get access to the entire dojo, including the private video training library, the community, which can help hold you accountable for reaching your goals, and direct access to myself, Brooks, Tan, and the rest of the Asian Efficiency team. But that special $1 for your first month offer is only available at theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. Again, that URL is theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. You can also find links to everything that we discussed today in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 197. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us an iTunes review or a star in Overcast. The show is on Twitter as at ProductivityFM. And if you want to get your questions answered and get mentioned on the show, you can send us a tweet with the hashtag AskTPS. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next Productive Monday.